You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, and I'm joined, as always, in studio by Billy Galanko. Billy, welcome back from Thanksgiving. How are you doing? Doing very well today. Happy post-Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's pitch black out now, and it's five. What time is it here now? Five twenty-two. It's pretty rough this time of year, and I, uh, I guess this is only the second year that I've been full work from home when it's really dark out. But it's definitely depressing being in your house in the winter time when it's dark at five. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think everybody can agree with you on that, regardless of where you work. I only sit outside on our patio in the afternoons, and it is kind of weird when I'm just sitting there, and then like I don't have to go in because of any reason except it got dark and i'm just like wow i'm outside and it's getting cold <laughs> yeah, the other day on thanksgiving my wife and i were like well like i guess it's time to go we we're at my aunt's house i was like well we should probably head back we have about 45 minute drive it's getting late and <laughs> we look at the clock and it's like 6 15 <laughs> <laughs> thought it was like nine but had some yeah drank some good stuff for thanksgiving i don't know if you want to talk about some of the bottles that you had yeah. no what were I, some of your favorites well, so I I do this where I I bring too much wine and I had like a half a box of like different whiskeys and stuff like that too that I brought for my uncles and then I have one aunt who really likes wine but it was just probably I brought too much so I had all this stuff open and probably only three quarters of it was consumed but my favorite had a 2010 Saxon Syrah Ben oh. Rock which was really good although I opened it like. Pretty much right when we got there and, and had some and it was it was good but then four hours later it was like incredible which i was really surprised at i was actually you know interested to see how well it was holding up 11 years on but it like hands down could go another decade and be unfazed the alcohol is so high on that wine though i think that was throwing me off a bit it's like 15.2 percent mm. and just yeah it wasn't sitting super well with me I, I wish it was lower alcohol but other than that it was incredible so Wow. Yeah, you definitely got to let things open up a little bit. It's crazy how how they can evolve when they, they have the time, which is always hard yeah. to calibrate. But And sorry, I mentioned another. I had a, a, a 2014 Bohem Pinot Noir hmm. Sonoma, I believe. I have to look up exactly where. But it, I mean, I would have, if I was tasting it blind, I would have said that it had like 15, 20 years of age. It was really weird. I, but I've never had, you know, Pinot, like California Pinot with any amount of age on it. So I just was not expecting some of the qualities, like incredibly earthy, tons of mushroom. Like the fruit was still there. Like the acidity was good, but it was, yeah, definitely well into its secondary and tertiary kind of notes was probably on the back side of its, of its life, which was, yeah, I didn't know that that was kind of maybe typical for the warmer climate pinots. I'm not sure if you have any comment on that, but I just felt like it would have a little bit more energy in it. You know, only, a, only eight years on, I guess. So, Yeah, I've heard that can happen with, you know, California pinots in some places where it's the, the fruit is so prominent in a fixture, I guess, of the palate and the, and the aromas that when it starts to fade, it kind of goes more quickly than some yeah. of the other ones where it's kind of a, an ancillary note. I mean, it was it was perfect. Well, not perfect. I would say it was probably maybe like two years past mm. and like drink it right now, like this month kind of thing. <laughs> but it, it was still really good. And yeah, so those were the two main 
main things we got into. Nice. Yeah, I'll quickly touch on ours and then we can talk about our collection sellout and our interview. I found a 2015 Luis Pato, which is a very well-renowned, well-renowned, one of our favorite producers from Portugal in Pennsylvania. And part of what my goal there was is these highly controlled states. They have wine buyers. And I was at their like the, the state controlled wine shop and liquor stop. But then it was also like their premium collection. I don't know. It was called like the collection version. Yeah. So, Fine wine and good spirits, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And they, they have good wine buyers and they buy some obscure things. Sometimes people try to expand, but some of the audience, since they don't have a huge exposure to these different wines, don't always drink all of them. So my goal was to go find a wine that people didn't know that was probably there and was really good and it was underpriced. And I did. So I found this this 23, it was $23. Originally had a sticker on it for 36. It said it was originally like 50 something, who knows. But one of my favorite producers, and you look at it, and the only reason I kind of knew it was him right off the bat is he goes by Duckman, Luis Pato, Duckman. So he always mm-hmm. has ducks on all his stuff. Um, mm-hmm. More recently, there's some artistic kind of drawings with it, but I saw the duck. So I zoomed in and I was like, oh, well, this is cool. It's Luis Pato, like big fan. But the whole front was all this Portuguese. Like I didn't really even understand most of it. So I I Googled it and it turns out it was like a single vineyard, like one of his top like oh, wow. it was in the region Bairada, which is where he's kind of based. It's kind of right in the middle. And it's it was a single vineyard of this great Baga, which he's known as like the Baga godfather. It's basically if you look up in the Oxford Companion to Wine, they tie up a little blurb about Baga, and then they reference him like in the the grape <laughs> profile. So wow. I was, yeah, so I, I was pretty pumped. And very Baga is kind of a it, it's a little darker in terms of the the way it looks than Pinot Noir, but it's a higher acid, can be really high tannin if not done well. But um, kind of reminds me of a, a, a Pinot Noir down the line. So it's a higher acid red. It had these secondary notes, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of leather, and the and the fruit had been evolving. So it's kind of like a a little bit darker, earthier Pinot Noir, and when, especially when the tannins are a little bit more mellow. When it's younger, maybe a little more aggressive. But that was really cool. And that was one that my we were at my grandmother's old condo. It's kind of where the family stays. We bought it when she moved to the old people's home. And she has no <laughs> glasses that like remotely resemble wine glasses. So yeah. I opened it with an uncle. We started tasting it in these little plastic cups, like, you know, the kind you get on like a uh-huh. plane. That was bad. I tried putting it in like a rocks glass that helped. I ended up finding like a tall plastic cup and we just like put it in there and I let it breathe for a while and and that that worked better. But I like those I like those playing glasses though because they don't have uh, rolled rims. At least they're a thin kind of rim on the edge of the glass. <laughs> I guess, but the plastic was just and then it was the the wide it's, <laughs> sure. It's such it had such nice aromatics that like they were just getting like blown out the sides. So we basically found like the the narrowest cups. It was like these little glass ones that were probably only like mm-hmm. an inch and a half wide. And we just take like little sips, but uh, it, it worked and it, it really <laughs> opened up nicely. So that, that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. That that was kind of how we were drinking that Saxum. So I, I would feel better if it had not been, if it had been a $26 bottle drinking out of solo cups. Versus that one. <laughs> well, good, good for fine wine and good spirits or whatever it's called up in Pennsylvania. I think I've only been in them a couple of different times. Was that up near Pittsburgh or where were you? Yeah, it was Candensburg area. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to try and slip into one maybe when we're up there this weekend to see what they got. Yeah, definitely check out the one. I guess it's like seller collection or something. You like were that. at you were at a premium one though. It yeah, wasn't like a no- I, I, I went okay. to a regular one and it was just not, was not. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. like an ABC store in Virginia. Um 
Well, yeah. So moving on from that, I guess we have a collection still out to touch on, and then we'll briefly intro our interview for today. Yeah, we sold out our Bordeaux Millennium collection, which has been on the platform for some time alongside our Bordeaux Futures. So it was kind of cool, right? We had Bordeaux Futures, which is current, well, not current release, but a forthcoming release. And then we had the Bordeaux Millennium collection, which a collection of wines from different top producers from the year 2000, which is an iconic vintage, obviously 22 years of, well, I guess 20 20-ish years of age on those wines now. And so we had kind of the the old and the new, the, these wines really coming into their own. So congrats to all the investors who got into that collection. Um, we have about 10% left as of this recording in our Bordeaux Futures offering. And so, yeah, we've had a lot of Bordeaux on our site for the past several weeks. But as we mentioned, maybe in our last episode, we have about 17 new offerings coming down the pipeline, which we'll keep everyone informed about, obviously, but I expect to see those collections come between now and I'd say the second week in January. So we'll have a lot of collections coming quickly, rapidly over time between now and the end of the year and look forward to offering another diverse set of, of wines and spirits too. Yeah. Whiskeys, that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these two collections were large and meant to be on the platform for a while. So like that was that was by design. Right. You will see in this next batch of collections some various sizes, some smaller, some some larger again. So there may be a couple where you have to act fast to be able to get into into the Yeah, we mix. we we, de- we definitely sized down in this next batch and I think like this cadence is kind of strategic. We had some, you know, what was it? I guess originally around 320, $330,000 worth of Bordeaux these collections on the platform at once. And I think that serves to allow, you know, old investors as well, but really new investors who come to the platform for the first time to purchase, you know, Bordeaux, which is, you know, takes up a lot. The market share globally allows them to build kind of a base in their portfolio. And now we'll have these maybe smaller collections, but, you know, some more emerging or trending regions, kind of maybe some really rare and what's the word? Low supply stuff that's out there. Yeah stuff with like low quantity, extra rarity in smaller, smaller formats that we'll have coming in the next couple of months that folks can kind of supplement and add to their portfolio that way. So I think it's an approach that we'll probably take again in the future of being able to allow people to build a base and then kind of get some rapid fire sort of fill in ones to build out their portfolio. Yeah, we will certainly be following that that general track. And we're, we're always learning and listening to everybody and seeing what you know, what our investors are looking for. So we're keeping an ear to the ground. Yeah. So now going on to our interview, we have Tim Gazer today, Master Sommelier and now author. He is coming out with a book. We had him to come on to talk about his book, also his 30 plus years of, of wine experience, working everywhere from importers to starting in the restaurant business himself to advising for different wineries and different producers and different regions even. So he really gives us basically all of the knowledge that he's compiled over the past 20, 30 years into a book I mean, he quickly runs through it and it's it's really interesting he has so much knowledge in his head he's probably forgotten more than i've ever learned about wine and he gives us some really thorough and thoughtful answers in this podcast i think you can definitely learn a lot no matter what level of wine taster you are if you're just starting or if you kind of a connoisseur he really paints the picture and had me think about things in a lot of different ways than i i ever had before and the book is called message in the bottle i don't think we got a a clear date on projected date on when the book was coming out. I don't know if you mentioned that to you offline or no, it'll be, it'll be soon. Okay. He's getting in the final draft revised now. So we'll go ahead and put links to maybe his 
his website in the podcast here, and then we'll go back and retroactively put links to the Amazon when it when it comes out, and we'll yeah. we'll probably send an update maybe in one of our Friday emails if it doesn't come out this week, which it's not going to. So we'll we'll come out with right. it soon. Very good. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a super thoughtful conversation, adding to the list of master sommeliers with backgrounds in fine art and music and these kinds of things. So, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. Hope you guys enjoy. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, no, it's exciting to have you on and looking forward to discussing your new book. But I hope maybe you could give just some of your background to our listeners. Sure. Well, thanks. So I've been in the wine business now for over 35 years. And it's a career arc that started in the restaurant business. And frankly, the you know, the first restaurant job I ever had was busing tables in a pancake house, right from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. Wow. <laughs> And that was when I was 16. And so I worked in and out of restaurants throughout undergrad and graduate school. My degrees are in music. I have a BA in music history and then master's in classical trumpet. University of Michigan, go blue, especially <laughs> nice. on Saturday. Yeah. And then when I was in Ann Arbor, I had the opportunity to work at two different restaurants, bartending, and both of them had huge wine programs. So right at the end, when I was finishing up my master's degree and trying to figure out where my wife, Carla, and I would move to, you know, because if you're a classical musician, you're going to take auditions and hopefully you're going to play freelance until you get a permanent gig. And so we settled on the Bay Area. But even before then, both of these restaurants had huge wine programs, like over a thousand wines on the list. Oh. And especially the the Earl, which is still there. And then the wine director, Steve Goldberg, who was also a sommelier there. You know, I started to get interested in wine. And my wife, Carla, bartended there, which was great because it means while I was a student, I drank for free. That's really <laughs> important. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, so I got a bit of a wine bug and decided to move to San Francisco <laughs> because a good friend lived in the area and then started to read about wine and started to collect it. We lived on an apartment on Russian Hill. I conditioned it, started to buy wine as I could afford it. And then, you know, if you're a freelance classical musician, you you live on starvation wages. So I was drag kicking and screaming back into the restaurant business. And that initially was bartending. And bartending turned into wine buying, turned into sommelier. And then, you know, I helped open a restaurant called the Cypress Club, which is long gone at the end of 1990 and ran a multi-million dollar wine program with two other sommeliers full time. And during that time, I was taking the MS exams. So I was with an amazing study group and, you know, passed two or three of the three then exams. There are now four within a year's time and then took the MS exam, passed two of the three parts, epically, monumentally failed the tasting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then came back a year later with the help with the amazing help of the other three guys in the tasting group and passed the tasting. So in 92, I was one of three Americans that year who passed the exam here in the U.S. That's and cool. from then, you know, I went to work for Height Cellars in Napa Valley for two and a half years. Incredible experience working for Joe and Alice Heights. And then in early 1996, I teamed up with dear friend Peter Granoff, who was in that tasting group that I worked with to study for the MS exams. And he opened a company that was called Virtual Vineyards. And Virtual Vineyards was the very first online retailer of any kind in July of 1994. And eventually, Virtual Vineyards became Wine.com. 
right? It was the original wine.com. Oh, wow. And wow. it tragically it ran the arc that many dot-coms did in that first iteration where it was tragically unplugged by, you know, the board, which was filled with VCs who wanted to walk away from the debt. It's a long, tragic story. <laughs> and so for them, I, you know, and, and later that year, 9-11 happened. So there was a hiring freeze by all the big wine companies. No one was hiring anyone. So at that point, I set out to be an independent contractor. A couple of years later, became the education chair for the court in the U.S., was that for nine years and the last two years full time. And then post 2011 is when I finally had a chance to start writing. And so now landing the plane and answering your question with starting a blog literally 10 years ago, I had already written things because I've done a lot of teaching even by then at the Culinary Institute and certainly for the court. And, you know, a lot of the writing I was doing had to do with tasting with my own long-term tasting project. And also it was addressing challenges that students had when it came to all sorts of aspects of tasting, you know, varietal recognition, assessing structure, telling difficult grape varieties and varietal wines apart. I mean, you name it. So, I mean, all of that is in the book. And so I didn't really have a chance because of the travel I was doing until the pandemic to put all this together. And of course, you know, as of March of 1990, and it may be the same for both of you, my life came to a screeching halt. It went from seven trips in the two months before to nothing for 18 months, travel-wise. And during that time, I was able to assemble a lot of information that I'd written over the previous decade and even more, and put it into the semblance of a manuscript. And so that's, you know, really the, the genesis of the book was a lot of writing over a decade's time and then having the opportunity to put it together. Yeah, so circling that all back, that's like, that's really interesting. And it, it must be so difficult to kind of compile or distill down, you know, 20, 30 years of knowledge down into like one book. And then... Well, yeah, yeah it is. And that's a that's a great point. And what's difficult about it is that because it was written at different times, the formatting was really inconsistent. In fact, that's what this round of editing that's happening right now, that's what it's addressing, is that the formatting is not only inconsistent. Actually, my, do my daughter, Maria, is doing this final round of editing, and she works for the School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina. And she's already published half a dozen times in academic journals. And so she is that level of editor and writer. And she came to me after looking at the manuscript and said, this is great but this is kind of an academic text and the formatting is all over the map and you need to fix it. <laughs> so there are times like Dirty Harry says, you know, a man's got to know his limitations. And so you have to step out of the way and let somebody who knows what they're doing, you know, just swing the bat. I want, I, I want to get, I want to get your perspective on, because we've met a couple of people who have a background similar to yours in music, who maybe are accomplished mm -hmm. performers or other artists or singers and other What's the connection between wine and music? I mean, that's kind of a high-level question, but and you can answer it however you'd like. But is there is yeah. there something that you took from that training to your MS program? And like, uh, have you thought well, about there that? There is. I mean, you know, Brady, that's a great question. And the snarky answer is lack of attention span. But that's not <laughs> always the case, right? So, you know, there's a lot of people in wine who have performing arts and liberal arts backgrounds. Yeah. And for me, what maps across, and I'm giving this a lot of thought, is that, you know, you know, say I was a trumpet player, right? And I played orchestral music. I did other things, too. I played in an R&B band and jazz bands and all that. But when you're a trumpet player, you're in the back of the orchestra and there's only three or four of you. And there could be 80 
you know, other musicians on the stage. You could be playing a big piece like a Verdi Requiem or Mahler 8, in which case there's 150 people behind you singing, which I have to tell you is incredibly loud. And beyond that, then you, there's a conductor out front, right? So what musicians like that can do at the unconscious level is they can take like an insane amount of sensory information that they're getting every microsecond and they can sort patterns and they know exactly what to focus on. Plus, they respond with their own playing in terms of the intonation, the timbre, their attacks, all this stuff in the moment and on the fly. And, and you can't you can't possibly explain how you do something like that. Okay, so that's one frame. And then to map that over to wine, when you put your nose in the glass, it starts this incredibly complex sequence that happens in microseconds. And you know, what's part of the book, in fact, there's a whole section of the book called The Inner Game of Tasting. And it has to do with the fact that most of us, over 90% of the human race is visual dominant internally. So we think in pictures and movies. And that's not everybody because there's always exceptions. I mean, everyone has the same mainframe and the same hard drive, et cetera, and nervous system. But we're all wired in, internally really differently. And specifically, the way we're wired internally differently is the sequencing of what we do and how we respond to say things is different, right? That's how everybody is different. Because... If you think about it, we the way we think is an internal extension of, you know, our five senses. So internally, we see things, we hear things, we feel things, either emotionally or kinesthetically, and then we're smelling and tasting. But in terms of thinking, you know, those last two, even though they're really vitally important to us and why, those are ancillary, they're secondary, right? So we're internally, we're constantly making pictures and movies. Okay, so... The disconnect for most people getting wine, and this is a long way of answering your question, but I think a lot of relevant points are here. The disconnect for people just getting into wine is they think that somehow putting your nose in the glass and being able to detect and recognize certain aromas and flavors, et cetera, is some kind of magical process. When in fact, it's an extension of every other thing we've ever learned, which is visual, right? So I, I guess that's a long way of saying that, you know, for most of us, not all, you know, smell and taste memory are intensely visual experiences internally. So you put your nose in a glass and you smell something and the only way you recognize it is you make an image of it, right? Based on your life memories. And for someone like us who's tasted thousands of wines, we put our nose in the glass and all of a sudden in the first five seconds, there's a lot that's happening. And we have a way of making sense out of all that. So there's that. And that's how they, you know, it's, it's again, going back to the musical comparison is doing things really quickly at the unconscious level. And most people aren't aware of what they do because you would need someone to stand next to you and say, if I were you, how would you, how would I do what you do? Because otherwise you're trying to be in one place and be aware of what you're doing at the same time, which is extraordinarily difficult. So again, you know, in smelling and tasting a wine, and, and most of us are using some kind of tasting grid. It could be the SWE grid, it could be uh, Society of Wine Educators, or it could be the Quartz grid or the grid I use, which is very similar to the Quartz grid, only it's longer, it's more detailed. But you've memorized that grid in some capacity, and you're using it like a checklist, a grocery list, and you're going through it incredibly rapidly. And you're saying yes, no. And if you answer yes to something that it's there, then you're describing it. And all that experience is happening like at light speed and it's visual. It happens very quickly. But then past that, you have a way of organizing all that information. So A, it's not on top of each other and it's not confusing. 
right? So you have some kind of map or way of organizing it. And, you know, that that specifically is not in the book because I thought it was too advanced. And maybe, you know, future iteration, another book, who knows? That'll be in it. But each of us has a collage or map that we organize all the images that have to do with smell and taste and wine. And they can be pretty science fiction, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> Because kinda... I've interviewed MS and MW colleagues and once they snap to the fact, because most of them don't know that they make images for smells and taste, you get some really strange stuff. Like mm -hmm. a good friend who's a colleague, for her, you know, all this is like tarot cards that she puts on a table in front of her. Another one, it was like leaves on a tree. Another guy, good friend, he was like in a cockpit and it was all like controls that were laid out in front of him, you know. And again, this all sounds really crazy, but since people aren't aware of it, they have a way of just organizing it. And what's curious to me, and again, sorry, this is such a long answer, is how this stuff even happens, you know? I mean, how does your brain at some point figure out, well, this seems to work really well, so I'm going to use this and organize. I mean, I have a really simple system where all the images end up down in front of me, and they're by category. And if I try to mix them up, they snap back to where the place is, right? And then once I go in for a conclusion, the important things just rise up. The pictures come up. And, and that's where, you know, this question that you mentioned about pattern recognition, mm, that's where that comes in. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that wasn't too much. <laughs> no, no, that that was awesome. I, I like the idea. Of, I think part of the parallel for me, as you were talking, is almost like reading a sheet of music. But instead of when you're tasting, you're kind of creating that sheet of music. But you're not trying to sit there and remember, you know, what, what different notes sound like or what different things sound oh, like. No. You know that you're basically yeah, you can't. plotting them out as they go. You can't. Um, yeah. You know, especially for the, you know, the people who listen to this, who are taking exams like WSAT exams, you don't have the luxury of that. You know, you know, when you're in an exam situation, you know, sadly, I think somewhere between 25 and 35 percent of your game is, is just going to be taken out on a given day by your nerves. Unless you're someone who has, you know, pretty lengthy background in performing arts where you're used to acting or you're public speaking or something, you know, your nerves are really going to do. So you don't have the luxury. There's not space on your hard drive to try to remember where you're at or what you're supposed to be doing. It has to be automatic. I mean, you have to know it cold. And if you don't, it's just a struggle and it's hard. Yeah, that so. makes a lot of sense. So in I, I was just saying that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I happen to say a lot on this podcast. Anyways, what, what I was kind of thinking about there is, so knowing how complex it can be, but how you were trying to distill it down and, and kind of simplify the the concepts, how, who who is the audience for this book, do you think? Is it somebody studying? Is it somebody trying to get into it? Who, who are you writing for? Well, great question. You know, originally, it was for what a colleague calls the Jedi Knights in training. <laughs> nice. So it was for all the wine students. <clears throat> but then the same friend came back to me and said, you know, once this book is published, you have no control over who's going to read it. And you need to make it as user friendly as possible. So that sent me back to the drawing board and I wrote introductions to each chapter. And then I wrote author's suggestions at the end of each chapter. So at the beginning of the chapter, said, here's what's coming. This is what I'm going to tell you in this chapter. At the end, I said, here are strategies that you can use to cover the information, you know, that we just went over. And I do have to tell you, and this is not an exaggeration, there is a great deal of information in this book. I mean, it is information dense. There are several chapters that are long lists of things. 
like there are two chapters that are markers for classic grape varieties. <clears throat> so one for white, one for red, and then, you know, not only markers, but, you know, common structural levels, right? Which I think, you know, if, you know, the challenge is that I will just say this, for anybody who's studying wine who wants to become a proficient, proficient, excuse me, professional taster, you know, the, you know, the barriers to entry are is obviously knowing markers for classic grapes and wines, being able to assess structure, and being really owning structures so you can really calibrate, you know, levels of alcohol, acidity, phenolic bitterness, and tannin in wine, and then connecting the dots. And, and there's also a subset of aromas and flavors I call impact compounds. And I think professionals have to own them. So you need to recognize carbonic maceration and stem inclusion and Beaujolais village, right? Mm, right? Or you need to, you know, you need to pyrazines and Sauvignon Blanc or Cabernet family grapes or terpenes and aromatic grapes or rotundone and Valiner. You have to own those things because if you don't, you won't be able to recognize them. And if you can't recognize them, you can't judge quality. Because I think at the end of the day, any of us who are trained to be wine professionals, that's our job is to be able to judge quality. And even if you're buying for a corner supermarket or you're the person in charge of the list for a three-star Michelin restaurant, you have to be able to judge quality, period, because that's what we're supposed to be able to do. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting, Tim. I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the visual representation in your mind and how you kind of create this picture for all of the great qualities when you're, or the qualities of wine when you're assessing, you know, ultimately the quality of the entire wine together. Are there some visual images that come to mind when you think about you know, wine faults or negative qualities of wine, qualities, you know, imperfections in the finished product. How, you know, what are some frameworks for the way that you think about the lack of a quality? Well, you know, it's that's a great question, Brady. Certainly, it's an extension of the whole visual process. But, you know, just to make a point that I'm not consciously, uh, consciously aware of the visual thing when it's happening, unless I want to be, because I just let it fly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm letting my brain do what it does. And then after the fact, I'm, you know, I'm recognizing things that I'm getting and the impetus for doing that is the visual part. So to your point, yes, there's a subset of aromas and flavors, you know, the, the considered faults. And it's the same mechanism, certainly. And I have images for, you know, things like TCA and VA and retinomyces and all sorts, you know, the other faults. But also an important point to make about faults is that other than TCA and H2S, hydrogen sulfide, smells like sewer gas, rotten eggs. You know, those are universally considered faults. Everything else, context enters the picture pretty quickly because there are wines that have, you know, a fairly high amount of level Britannomyces or volatile acidity, or I can't think about, you know, white Bordeaux, Pesac Leonian without Mercaptan, right? Or even some white burgundies where they're made in a cold cellar and there's there's the presence of Mercaptan. So it's, you know, it's very contextual. But to your point and to answer your question, it's the same mechanism internally. In the, in the sense of identifying quality and kind of some of your core markers, I really want to move on eventually here to the, the inner tasting game. But can you tell us a couple mm -hmm. of like for very common varieties or styles of wine that people may be drinking on a regular basis, what some of your go to markers are? Well, I, it's it's not so much that, you know, but it's first of all, it's an overall issue of balance and then mm -hmm. typicity, right? So mm -hmm. balance and when white wine, that's always fruit and acid balance. Right. And then if you've got residual sugar, then the, the residual sugar, the RS and the acid balance has to be there, right? Because if there's not enough acidity, the wine's out of balance and it's cloying. 
And then with red wine, of course, you throw tannin and then oak into the mix. And, and then, then once again, the question is, is there enough fruit to, to support new oak, right? Because if there isn't, the wine isn't balanced. So it's not markers per se, but it's balance of those elements, important elements, most of them structural. And then it's typicity. You know, you know, you tasted, you know, dozens of Sanceros in your career and you taste one from the 2018 vintage and you say, wow, this is a really warm year. There's not a lot of pyrazines, the alcohol is high, and there's not a lot of acidity, right? Mm. So there's that. Or, you know, if it does happen, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from a cool climate in a cooler vintage, which is red fruit dominant and really green and vegetable and pyrazinic and acidic and maybe not balanced, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you're judging using previous experience, but also you have benchmarks in your memory of what a good, you know, Sancerre or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I can see how that would be really helpful. Is there, are there any tips you would give people who are either maybe just starting their their studying journey or people who mm. don't drink as many wines as Psalms and maybe don't have that bank? Well, you know, that's Billy, those are short questions with long answers. <laughs> <laughs> There's even one chapter in the book that, that's called Eating the Elephant. And it's for beginners and it's advice for beginners. And, you know, I'm not paid by Coravan even though they could pay me. But I think a Coravan is the single most important and useful wine accessory if you're studying for a wine certification. You know, because I think back, you know, eons ago when there were pterodactyls and I was, you know, studying for the (laughs) MS exams. I spent thousands of dollars out of pocket on wines that I would taste, hardly drank, and they didn't last very long, right? In fact, they would lose their freshness and typicity within a few days. And now you can buy a Coravin and you can buy best examples, varietal wines or wines from places, and you can taste them repeatedly. And that's what you need to do. And and there's several times in the book where I say you need to get a Coravin, right? And then you need to taste wines in pairs, right? You need a control wine. You need an easy wine, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And then you taste wines against it. And you can see, uh, you know, ah, you know, here we have Chardonnay from someplace in the new world that has least contact malolactic and oak. And here we have New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc with none of those things, or maybe some least contact, but it has pyrazines. It's like vegetal, right? And the two things, it's like comparing Elvis and Beyonce. You kind of go, oh, okay, I got this, right? And from there, working with the control, then you can calibrate your palate for structure, for levels of acidity, for oak versus no oak, which is hard for some people, or the presence of earth and mineral versus not, which is also hard for some people. Yeah. So a Coravin is the single most important thing you can do. And they're only, what, $150 now? Mm-hmm. And man, I can't emphasize that enough because you can really, again, buy great examples of wine and they last. You can use them for a while. Right. I, I think that's great advice. Yeah. For my last exam, I just took the, the diploma level the number three exam in the mm-hmm. WSET diploma and having gone through some of these other tasting exams before without a Corvin. And then this time, like we had, you know, <laughs> 40 plus wines and being able just yeah. to pick without them going bad. It was, it was crazy. And it really helped like to your point. Exactly. So makes a lot of sense. All right, moving on now to this inner game of tasting. I, number one, I love that, that title in general. I think that's really interesting because it is kind of like a game and you're learning how to hone your skills along the way. Mm-hmm. What, how would you, how would you say with this, your internal, you kind of touched on it, I guess it's visual, auditory, but what, what are some of the kinesthetic pieces and what are some of these sub-modalities you touch on that kind of 
improve recognition and sensitivity? Like what, can you unpack okay. kind of what that means and then how to sure. implement Okay, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I have to be an ego Montoya here and sum up. First of all, I wanted to call the book The Inner Game of Tasting. But I knew that, you know, the attorneys for Timothy Galway's estate would contact me in no time and sue me. So that went out the window. OK, <laughs> so the inner game of tasting, you know, that has section, section of the book is about two things. One, there's a couple of exercises in there on to build focus and concentration, because especially for exam purposes, you have to have a ferocious, the ability to go into a ferocious state of concentration. You have to be able to shut the world out, calm your nervous system down and bring your game. Right. And that is something that doesn't happen by itself. You need to practice it. And so there's a couple of really good exercises for that in the book. And believe it or not, you know, both of them have to do with eye positions to trigger that internal state. In terms of the rest of it, you know, the rest of it is using, again, conscious awareness of internal imaging, but also kind of working backwards, right? There's a chapter that's called front loading of the basic set. And that's two different concepts. And uh, the second one first. So the, the basic set, and this goes back to a concept of economics, actually. And there was a guy, Vilfredo Pareto. He was an Italian economist. And at the end of the 19th century, he published this paper that said, at the time, 80% of the wealth and property in Italy was owned by 20% of the people. And that ratio of 80-20, he found, like, throughout any number of different diverse studies and fields, right? Right. And it came to be called Pareto's Law. And what it means, basically, it's called the law of the vital few, where a relatively small subsection of a whole is responsible for most of the results. And taking that as a cue, you know, I thought, well, you know, there, there are aromas and flavors that, you, that are in a lot of wines, like green apple, or like cinnamon, or like mushrooms, or chalk. And so what if you worked on your memories not with wine in hand for those things. And to do that using not only visual but auditory to where you're saying the things either inside voice or outside voice, doesn't matter. There's steps that you practice this technique using both. The idea being that you're improving your recognition of these very common things. In which case, when you put your glass, your nose in a glass of wine, all of a sudden they pop and, and you can move to other things in the glass because you know these things, you just know them. And so the basic set is that, that subset of aromas and flavors and front loading is literally working with your memories without wine, but then going back to the wine. Okay. Because, right. you know, my feeling is that there's a lot about tasting that should be practiced without a glass of wine in hand, because it's all perception, recognition, and memory. Wow. No, I think I, I haven't, I always describe to people when they're trying to learn tasting wine in general, like that, that idea of conscious tasting, like paying attention to what you're getting. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense to go through and actively smell and kind of, to your point, add to your Rolodex in a yeah. sense of like where you don't have the pressure of trying to identify the wine. You don't have this macro thing. It's like really just narrowing down right. and focusing on that one aspect. I think that. Yeah. yeah, well, there's that problematic little voice in our head that's desperate to get the wine right. <laughs> oh, yeah. So and that's true for everybody, no matter how long you've been in the business, if you're blind tasting. And and the, and the, the important thing is to keep it happy. Because if you tell it to shut up, it'll just keep getting louder. So you have to park its idea over here. And then you have to be very disciplined and go through the process. And and then at the end, if it makes sense, it makes sense. You know, you know, it's 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 disciplined and it's also repetition. But again, a lot of this rep repetition has 
to do with memory and it doesn't have to do with physically tasting. And that's what that entire section of the book is about. You know, there's one whole chapter that's called, you know, tasting practice without wine. Yeah. And there are all these strategies where you're practicing different aspects of tasting, you know, calibrating structure, which I think you do it visually as well. And, you know, everything from flavor recognition to pattern recognition to assessing structure. There's a lot of it you can do without wine in, in hand. And I think you should. As a recreational I'll, tennis player. Sorry, I just want to have one more thing on that, Brady. I, it reminds me a lot of practicing tennis. Like as a recreational player, I want to go out and just play a match. But sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to go and just sit forehand after forehand. And that's how you actually yeah. get better at it rather than just trying yeah. to play the whole time. Yeah. And I did. Well, so Billy, did you ever read The Inner Game of Tennis? No, actually. Oh, you, you absolutely should. It's a great book because it was written. It's all about the Arthur Ashe, you know, the U.S. Open final, I think in 75, and Arthur Ashe upset Jimmy Connors, who was heavily favored. And the long and short of it, and Timothy Galway never gets there, was that Arthur Ashe was in such a deep trance that day. He could have bitten, he could have beaten five other guys on the other side of the net at the same time. He was unstoppable because his state on that particular day was like unbreakable. And and so Galway, you know, he writes about that. And, and I don't think he ever arrives at the fact that Arthur Ashe's, you know, mental state, his resource state that day was so powerful that he was unbeatable. But, you know, there are ways to do that, too. There's definitely techniques to practice that. So. Wow. You, you, got, you got me off track in my mind. Now I'm thinking about tennis. I'd love to find that book. Yeah, I. Uh, Billy, did you did you have something while I try and recover my thoughts? Sure. So going down to the internal, I, I guess let's let's play this out a little bit. Then give us an example of a wine where, say, you've practiced and you have a few visual things. So say, walk us through like a, a wine quickly. I think it would just be interesting for like maybe a common one. Maybe it's uh, something that's maybe domestic that you know some of our listeners might be listening to, or really an iconic wine from either Bordeaux or Burgundy, and kind of some of these telltale notes. <clears throat> well, you know, say more about that because what do you want me to touch on just in terms of my internal well, experience? Well, a little bit. So, sure. Yeah. So, maybe say some of like you were talking about either mushrooms or cinnamon or some of this earthiness. Like, give an example of a wine, if you could, that maybe some that's kind of readily available. Maybe people can go to and they can say after they practice some of these and kind of identify them, dive that level deeper into more complex notes or structure. Right. Well, you know, that there's really two, there's several levels to that. And so the first thing, you know, there's 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 kind of like some pregame things that have to be covered. So, you know, I think of someone who um, is either studying or getting into wine. So they, first of all, you need to use a grid, some kind of outline or whatever as just a, a basis to work from because you need a checklist, right? Because otherwise you're going to be all over the map recognizing things and, and the wine could be confusing. So, but also just knowing, you know, taking a look at a wine and, and what does the color mean? What could it mean? And, and you know, the, the tears, legs, viscosity, Marangoni effect, whatever you want to call it. But then, you know, putting your nose in the glass and just going down a list of things, you know, what does it smell like for fruit, right? If it's a red wine, is it, you know, red fruit, dark fruit, dried fruit, blue fruit? And then in terms of, and, and then taking that, and your parking cause and effect over here, which is another really important concept. So if it's red fruit and there's not a lot of color in the wine, what could that mean? You know, things like, well, it's a thinner skin, lighter pigmented grape, probably grown in a cooler climate. The fruit's going to be tart. There's going to be higher acid, less alcohol, probably more savory things, non-fruit things, 
in the wine versus, you know, wine with a deeper color, darker fruit, blue fruit, you know, maybe dry fruit, if it's Marasa Shiraz or something like that. And then, you know, just higher alcohol, less acid, probably acid adjusted, probably tannin, more tannin, and probably more oak, right? Right. So again, the combination of, of sight and smell together like that should build expectations that you're going to confirm pretty quickly when you taste it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, you know, that's my reasoning process, you know, that starts from the moment I look at wine and then I carry through. It's like building a case for what the wine could be when you get to the end of it. Yeah. So let's just to bring it a little one step further. Let's play it out in like a wine, say like a, a Cru Beaujolais. I think that was something we recommended mm-hmm. last week for people pairing with Thanksgiving. Like what, what are some of these things you would expect to see as you walk through like a Cru Beaujolais? That's, and you can pick whichever crew you want. I know they can vary. Yeah, the, the, well, they do. And, and you know, the, the question is, is it, is it a winemaker that uses carbonic or not? If not, you're always going to have, you know, you know, predominantly red fruit, but also dark fruit, depending on the vintage. It's going to be fresh. You're going to have floral qualities, probably rose or violet, terpenes, right? You could have carbonic notes, although I think many crew producers now aren't using carbonic, you know, because they want to separate themselves right. from Beaujolais Village and for good reason. Yeah. So, but you've got a really bright, fresh fruit quality in terms of uh, non-fruit. You've got probably stems because from a whole cluster at the very least, you've got a green stem equality. You've got earth and mineral and, you know, the soils there are either granite in many of the crews or there's this really light limestone in the north. So that's going to come into play. And then oak presence, if it's there, is going to be used. And that's texture on the sides, you know, and on the finish. And then I think just... For me, what separates crew from Beaujolais Village is certainly, you know, not the overall quality, but it's the middle of the wine is can be really dense. It's, you know, a lot of times earth and mineral driven, but there could be times where it's combined with savory type qualities. And, you know, the mid palate of any wine helps to define complexity, but also quality. Because there you're talking about probably older vines, lower yields. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that really comes into play. So for me, you know, I do most of the work on the nose, like 85% of it. But when I taste, I'm confirming what I've smelled and it's the structure, but I'm looking for something in the middle. Does the wine really have the stuff in the middle? Yeah, no, I see that. How would you compare like a a Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais to like a, one of these, mm-hmm. like a, a far northern Cote de Nuit wine, like maybe like a Marcinet or a, a fix a Fixin or a fish, Fijin? Fijin? I can never say Fijin. Yeah, well, yeah that's know. the same. So the Burgundy, the Burgundy is going to have red fruit predominantly, you know, and odds are it's going to be a lot more savory. There's going to be more non-fruit things about it. The soil qualities will be different. Uh, odds are if it's a good wine, it's going to have oak on it, right? right. At least you used oak or partial new oak, and you're going to be able to tell. Not as much dark fruit. Obviously, no presence of carbonic. You could have stems if it's a traditional producer, but to me, you know, the red fruit, the savory, there's a black tea, there's mushroom, there's there's soil, things like that. The wines don't even look like each other, right? Because odds are Beaujolais Cru is going to be darker in color. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I just wanted to see what what your thoughts were, because those are two wines generally in the same kind of price range from similar (laughs) areas. So, So Billy, they're also two of the evil dwarves, right? And we uh-huh. haven't talked about the evil dwarves. No, let's so, get into this. Yeah, so there's a subset of, of semi-aromatic white grapes slash wines. And then red wines made from 
lighter pigmented, relatively speaking, thinner skinned. That's a broad term, red grapes, right? And so on the white grape slash wines, you've got the things like Grunewald Liner, Albarino from Maria Spices. You've got Alsace Pinot Gris, Alto Adige Pinot Grigio, Loire Chenin Blanc like Vouvray Sec, and then probably Riesling, dry Riesling from Alsace, Austria, maybe Grosses Gewex. And so those wines drive students insane. And then on the red side, we've got things like, you know, Gamay, Pinot Noir, Tempranillo, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, and Grenache, Grenache blends. So once again, you've got wines. If you line these wines all up, they look alike or they can look alike. And then the fruit qualities of many of them are really similar. So you have to take those two things off the table and you really should anyway, because, you know, kinds of fruit in a wine, it can be so subjective. What's not objective, and here's what this whole chapter about in the book, is here are tells for each of those grapes to differentiate them, you know, how, you know, mistaking Grunewald Liner with Rotundon with Peppery and all the vegetal things in it. You know, here's how it's different from Alsace Pinot Gris or from Albarino or from Loire Chenin Blanc, right? So those, again, talk about instance where you need a core event to practice those wines in pairs. Yeah, because it takes time. I mean, think about, you know, telling the difference between, say, Brunello and Barbaresco in a blind tasting. Mm, not so easy. That's really challenging. Yeah. Ah, those are Definitely. I, I do encourage everybody listening to if you haven't to sit down with some of those wines all lined up. It is it is interesting mm. and you will be able to differentiate a bit after yeah. a while, but certainly challenging. It takes practice. It takes a lot of practice. Yeah. How how important do you think some of these more like I would call critical tasting frameworks, right? Things that we would typically associate with wine professionals. How important do you think those frameworks are for just like your casual wine enthusiast or collector? How significant do you think these frameworks are for people who aren't okay. professional? So, Brady, say a bit more. When you when you say frameworks, what does that mean? Yeah, just like when I – so for me, you know, grid. I, I, yeah, I've started on some wine education and obviously we're, you know, adjacent to the industry. So, yeah, sitting down and tasting with a grid is something that I might do when I'm enjoying wines from my own cellar. Do you think that that's a significant part of the journey or for any wine enthusiast or do you think that – this isn't necessarily a place that everyone ends up having to go to to really enjoy wines. No, I don't think it's necessarily a place. You know, I mean, there's so many different contexts. And, and here, this is where the music parallel comes in, right? You know, you, you music can be Mary Had a Little Lamb or it can be a late Beethoven string quartet, <laughs> which is at the deep end of the pool, okay? And everything in between. And one is the same way. I think the most important thing and, you know, at the end of the day, for all of us who are professionals, is that we want more people to share in the experience that's wine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even if someone, we get someone to have one glass of wine a week with Sunday night dinner, in which case you would hope there would be better bag-in-a-box wines, because that's what we're talking about, right? I just think for a consumer, what's important is to, to have some definitions of things that they're smelling and tasting and know what they are. And to have that explained to them, you know, so they can understand it, right? You know, the physicist Richard Feynman once said, you know, if you can't explain something to an eight-year-old, you don't know what you're talking about. That's how we have to explain wine to consumers, and we can do it. The other thing is, is yeah, you can you can use an outline, I guess, but for consumers, it needs to be really broad in general. Just say, you know, color comes from this. And when you're smelling this, wine tends to smell like fruits, because if you want to get technical, the chemical compounds in the wine are 
similar to the chemical compounds in fruits, right? They're just different. And then tell, you know, explain this is what oak smells like, and this is why wine is put in oak. And, and if you do that, then turn them loose. I think it's much better. I think it's easy, you know, as you two well know, it's easy to overwhelm consumers with stuff they don't need to know. And, you know, this it's frankly, that's part of what being a good sommelier is about, is you're at a table and you have to read a consumer on the fly, the, the guest in your dining room. And most of the time they don't want to know, you know, they, they want something. I mean, you know, the most common popular favorite descriptor for red wine is smooth. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a reality check for all of big, us. Big, big and you know, smooth. Yeah, you know, this. I think it was the National Restaurant Association years ago did this survey of New York restaurants and they polled like 10,000 diners and said, what's your favorite style of red wine? And over 7,000 people said smooth. <laughs> or dry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that, you know, reality check, but at the same time, I think giving you know consumers enough tools so they know what the basics are and they could explain them to somebody else but also showing them how to hold a glass of wine and smell it properly and when they taste maybe explain how to pick apart acidity from alcohol from tannin is useful in fact you know that's one of the first chapters in the book it's called glassware stance and you know i covered you know the usual basics angle of the glass and smelling techniques but then i covered two things that most people don't talk about and the first is what I call active versus passive inhalation. And most people smell, I think most of the human race, if you gave them a glass of wine, they plant the glass under their nose on their upper lip and they just go. And I can't do that, right? That overwhelms my nose. So I learned this in a cognac masterclass. I can't take credit. I learned it like 30 some odd years ago. But at the time, this is for Remy Martin and the cellar master said, look, for many of you, the alcohol in these brandies is just gonna overwhelm your nose. You need to pull the glass away from your face about half an inch at least, and you need to open your mouth and you need to breathe in and out gently through your mouth and nose at the same time. And when I did that, it's like everything changed. All of a sudden, bright lights, angels, the whole enchilada. And that's how I smell wine. And what you're doing is you're using orthonasal and retronasal in tandem, in sequence. And you've also increased the real estate by 300% for smelling wine. It doesn't work for everybody, but I tell you, especially when you're smelling fortified wines or spirits, you know, pulling your nose out of the glass and giving yourself some space and using that is, is so much more beneficial. Okay, so that's one thing. And I'm getting off topic, but I think this next point is really curious because no one talks about it. And I, I call it finding your a consistent starting eye position when you smell wine. So to me, smelling wine is like lining up a golf shot. It's a really complex sequence, and it has to have a consistent beginning. And if you don't line up your golf shot the same way every time, golf is not going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I would say, and this also has to do with behavioral psychology, because, you know, humans, in terms of sense memory, we have eye patterns in positions, right? And these are called vertical lateral eye movements or eye accessing cues. And most of the human race, if, if you ask them a question that has to do with visual memory, their eyes pop up and to the left. Not universal. Some people, it's up and to the right. Auditory is horizon. Kinesthetic is usually down right. Not for everybody. And digital audio, when you talk to yourself, you look down to the left. Most people, not everybody. Some people, some people who are left-handed, everything's this. But what I'm saying is that 
over time, both of you probably have a very consistent position where you put your nose to the glass and your eyes go somewhere and they go somewhere that's the same place that they usually go. And that place, you're not looking at it, anymore, but it triggers the internal sequence of smelling wine and making sense out of it. So my supposition is this, you need to figure that out and use it consciously, okay? And mine happens to be down left, about 45 degrees off the ground and slightly to the left, and I'm looking at about arm's length away. And my eyes aren't looking anything, they're softly focused. But, you know, I did some video work with a guy who was a behavioral scientist, and that was the first thing he pointed out. He says, hey, you know, every time you put your nose in the glass, your eyes go to the same place without fail. He says they're there for a second, and then they go all over the place, but you start in the same place every time. And after I snapped to that and started coaching students, especially, you know, people taking the MS exam, the last exam, just to use that as a resource, it's huge. It's a huge difference because it's like a security blanket in an exam. If things internally are falling apart or you're having what I call an alone at the edge of the universe moment, which happens, you can put the glass down, take a deep breath, pick it up, eyes go to where they're supposed to go, and you can start again. And you know where to start. That's huge. So anyway, those two concepts are just in the second chapter that's called Glassware Stance. And that's that's fascinating. I, I never I never contemplated where my eyes go, and now you have me already thinking about it. I think and okay. just having that. So like, Billy, the yeah. next time you go to a public tasting, okay, just get a glass and then and edge it back off into the corner and watch people smell wine. Okay, what you're going to find is practically everyone looks down. Almost no one even looks at the horizon and experiment. So everybody trying this and you guys have to try this. The next time you, tonight, you got a glass of wine in hand, pick it up, smell, 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 and gradually let your eyes go up in the sockets as far as they go. For most people, they completely lose their sense of smell. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. So check that out. So eye positions and tasting. It, smelling is really important. When you taste, it's totally different. But when you pick up a glass and smell, your eyes are horizon or down. And very few people I've ever seen, both of them happen to be MSs, they look out of the horizon when they're smelling. That's where they process. The rest of us are looking down. And if you if you watch a bunch of people in a group who are, say, are in a class or something and watch them all pick up a glass, they're all looking down. And the places are different for each person, but then you look down to process. I wonder if that's just like an evolutionary thing. And those guys who look up while they're smelling would survive more often because they can actually see a threat and the rest of us are <laughs> heads down. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. I, I will say I did have a, a a good friend in college actually point out to me the uh, opening your mouth a little bit where you're smelling whiskey, especially like scotch. And that's how he got me to really mm. appreciate it a little yeah. bit more because I was completely just blasting my face with alcohol. Um, I will say that definitely yeah. works. And I have yeah. a fortified exam coming up. So I... I hadn't even thought about employing that technique. Well, you know, one, one more little addendum to, the, to that same cognac masterclass in like 1988 or 89. This guy, you know, he said, he said, look, it's smelling spirits, and maybe this will help. He says, when you're smelling cognac or whiskey or whatever, he says, there are five different positions and says, and you have to start way out here. He says, and then your mouth is open. He says, and then you move in gradually. And the very last thing you do is put your nose in the glass. He said, but by then you should have done all the work. He says, all the work is out here with smelling spirits. So I had, a, I had an, uh, I had an MS friend tell me, and I don't know how appropriate this is if you're at a actual tasting or not, but to splash a cap of, if it's a spirit, like a, a whiskey or something or a cognac, splash it, a cap yeah, of it on your hands. 
Are you with me? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to splash a cap of it on your hands and let it dry and then to smell your hands. And he said, you can get like everything, you know, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting and is a way that has helped me discern aromatics and spirits some. But that, I thought that was, I had never heard that before. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I would just worry about the feral aspect. Of <laughs> yeah. Well, hands. wash your hands before you do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So back on the, the quality question, you do have a, a section on natural wine in your book. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested to hear because... I, I made the mistake of introducing my significant other to natural wine before she really understood regular wines. And now for a long time, she refused to drink what she called traditional wines, would only drink unfine, unfiltered natural wine. So we're working our way back. But I would love to hear what your your descriptions of quality are there, because we certainly drink a lot of them here. Yeah. Well, you know, there's hmm. first of all, you know, if she was your significant other, she gets to drink what she wants to drink. Right. That's all there is to it. Always, yeah. Right? Luckily, I mean, she's coming it's back. It's only then. wine, right? <laughs> you know, conjugal bliss matters, right? Beyond that, you know, this to unpack the whole thing about natural wine, first of all, to frame it properly, forever a day, there have been really skilled winemakers making wine with very little sulfur, with very little intervention, mm-hmm. right? And all winemaking is intervention, period. All viticulture is intervention, right? Because right. Vitus vinifera is basically a weed, right? And, and when we trellis it using VSP or whatever, I mean, we're basically taking it and using bonsai on it, right? And controlling so many aspects. Right. And then, you know, the use of sulfur, yeah, you know, I think you're going to make good wine. You need to use it unless you're really skilled and you're making small quantities of wine. I mean, I remember, God, going back 30 years, going to Ojai and Adam Tallmark, right, mm-hmm. who's right. just incredibly talented. And him saying, you know, I, this is, I keep my cellar really cold during crush. And he says, and I'm making really small lots of wine, so, you know, low fermentation temperatures, really slow, long fermentations. And he says, I can afford to use very little sulfur and sometimes not. He mm-hmm. says, but that's the only way you can pull it off, right? Okay. So on one side, you've got really skilled winemakers all over the planet making really good wine with very little sulfur, right? And they know exactly what they're doing. And then on the other hand, you have people who are trying to make natural wine, who don't have the background, the training, the skills, mm-hmm. and what they end up making can be pretty close to kombucha, okay? <laughs> so, you know, and, and the most I will just say, and this is not a slam on it, because look, I think natural wine matters. It's relevant. You know, my mom had this saying, it takes all types to fill up the freeways. She's white. Okay. So there's a place for natural wine. I think, though, at the same time, I will tell you practically every really incredibly flawed wine I've ever tasted was a natural wine. Okay. So it does, it, that brings up a lot of questions. Are there two standards for hygiene with wine? The answer is no, there's not. There's a way to make natural wine. But I don't think the process should obscure the grape variety or the place, too. There's that. And so, you know, again, I, I just think, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is that I'm hoping soon there will be a certification and standards for natural yeah. wine. Because, you know, I've talked to lots of people who make it, and they can never agree on what it is or what it should be. You know, right. they all have a way of what they're doing. And I think if we would get a certification, then the public would really have an idea of of what, you know, everyone's trying to do with natural wine. 
Yeah. So, I, you know, and, and at the same time, I have tasted natural wines that I thought were really good. I mean, there's this crazy guy, Tone Rambo, who's in Cava, and he's making natural Cava, and he's making natural Jarello, right? And oh, wow. then oaked. Yeah. He didn't get this. He dug this 40-foot hole on his property and filled it with artesian water, and he submerges all of his wines for four years. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> and he crazy. bottles them in, in, in like pottery crops. <laughs> And he refuses to put a label on him. So he has this piece of wood with all the, you know, the information that should be on the label (laughs) tied to the bottle with a piece of twine. But you know what? The guy's wines are really good. So it goes to show you. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely agree with the idea of I I always try to tell my friends when they're like, what is natural wine? I go down the low intervention route, but it, it is hard to explain to them that it has a lot to do with the winemaking process. And if the winemaker is good or knows what he's doing, to your point, can make some amazing wines where it's not all natural wine is quote unquote the same, I guess, when you're thinking of the quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, luckily, especially with studying for my last few exams, we have a lot of traditional wine in the house and she's she's very much a, a connoisseur of that now. So we've we've made good progress on the personal front. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. You know, you know, my wife, Carla, is not fond of Riesling, and it happens to be my favorite white grape and wine. Yeah, we're the same here. You know, yeah. we make it work. <laughs> and there again, there's a Coravin. So, yeah. Well, and luckily, <laughs> some of the, the best spate lasers are only 8%. So you don't really need another person to help you with a bottle if you don't really want to. Well, you know, there, there's the thing. You could theoretically drink an entire bottle watching Monday Night Football. You you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, so I guess the last couple of things I kind of wanted to touch on were smell memories and like synesthesia mm-hmm. and, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. How, how how do people work around right. those and utilize those to help taste? Well, I don't think it's something you consciously do. You know, mm-hmm. first of all, you know, just to have a, a, a pretty, you know, at least a set definition for synesthesia. And that's involuntary crosstalk between senses, Right. And that's people who constantly or really frequently, they hear colors or they see shapes and numbers in mathematics, <laughs> things like that. And, you know, that's you're probably talking one, two or three people out of 100. Right. And that's why in my book, there I, I stress several times, especially in that section three, the inner game of tasting, that, you know, some of the strategies, even all of them, they may not work for someone who's reading it. But to pay attention, because if you try a strategy and you're saying, God, this doesn't work at all. What's going on? To pay attention because your brain is probably screaming at you. I don't do it this way. I do it this way. Right. Because, you know, these imaging strategies, they're kind of like trying on clothes. Right. And you try something on it. It doesn't work. You automatically know why it doesn't work, but you know what would work. And it's similar that way because your brain, if you're paying attention, it will show you exactly what how it how it operates. Yeah. But in terms of synesthesia, you know, again, over the years, well, I should say, you know, back years ago when I was interviewing, doing these really lengthy interviews with MS and MW colleagues, I came across three people who are true synesthetes, two of them MSs, Sir Lucero and Roland Miku, and then Gillian Handelman, who's in charge of education for Kendall Jackson, right? Mm -hmm. And they they're Martians. Because <laughs> wow. when they put their nose in the glass, they don't see pictures. They project shapes and colors out of their head or out of their body. That's what they do. And in fact, if you if Gillian Handelman, if you Google her name, Kendall Jackson, 
there's a place on the KJ website where she has drawings of how she projects, how she responds to different grape varieties. And it's crazy to look at because there are all these shapes and colors. And that's what true synesthetes do. On the other hand, the very last chapter of the book that I call Crosstalk or whatever, Taking Flight, it just talks about the time where, you know, I, I was in a, a tasting in Santa Fe with an MW colleague and I put my nose in a glass of burgundy and all of a sudden I saw colors. And I heard a Mozart piano concerto, number 23, which has always sounded like fall to me. Don't ask why. And then a memory of being in Chateau Chinonceau in the Loire in October. Yeah. And all these things having to do with fall and richness and golden and light. And, you know, my thing was that I had been so disciplined forever and a day that there are times when all this hardwired memory can just cut loose. And instead of being a classical musician, it's jazz. It's absolutely jazz, where you're interpreting something in a totally different way. And it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, that makes, that makes, that goes back to the the natural and the kind of the, the passion or I guess feelings that wine can induce sometimes. I really completely oh, yeah. agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. What have, uh, just kind of maybe to start tying things up here, Tim, what have, what have been some of your most impactful wine experiences, wines that you've tasted kind of, you probably had to, you probably had to catch the bug a couple of different times over the last 30 years, right? Well, no, I would say no. I mean, you know, wine is such, I feel so fortunate to have had a career in wine because it's so extraordinary. I mean, the people that you get to know as colleagues who become dear friends, and my God, the places you get to go and and wine involves food. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole dining ritual experience, you know, sharing incredible meals and getting to go to places like Burgundy and Piedmont and, you know, Alto Adige and Germany and Austria and places and tasting wines, you know, in the place where they were made. But I would say it's funny because great wines and great wine experiences are different. They are usually different. In fact, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about four of them. <clears throat> and one of them was being in Europe for the first time in 87 with my wife, Carla. And we'd spend all day in Florence. And we wanted dinner. And we go into this trattoria. It's called Trattoria Zaza. It's still there. And it's a student joint, right? And so the, it was filled with students. And it was like chaos. It was so loud. They were watching soccer on TV. And, and they basically had red and white wine. And the red was Chianti out of this huge cask behind the bar. And if you wanted to eat, it was pizza or pasta and salad. Done, right? And that Chianti was one of the most delicious red wines up to that point I'd ever tasted. But again, the context of being with Carla for the first time in Florence. And, you know, my God, if you're in, you know, Tuscany and, and you have a glass of wine in hand and you're you're not happy, you have issues, <laughs> you know, really. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. And I'm a huge art fan. And we, I'd spent part of the day at the Uffizi Gallery and seeing all the Botticelli's. I mean, I just, ah, I get chills thinking about that. And, you know, and then other times, I mean, you know, my daughter, Maria, who's doing the final editing on the book and her christening, which was early 1990. And I, we were drinking 1979 Paul Roger Rosé. And I just remember holding her. And the wine, and just ah, it's incredible, right? So yeah, so that that is to say, you know, a lot of great wine experiences like that. the The wine wasn't cosmic, but it was the people and the situation and and where you were that really make it. 
That's a great answer. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of. Uh, it sounds like a nice christening as well. So I don't know. It was. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining, Tim. This has been a, a great conversation. I appreciate you kind of running over a little bit with us. Well, my pleasure, and thanks for having me. And uh, you know, looking forward to the book being out. And I'll certainly let you guys know as soon as it is. Yeah, in when, fact, when it is, I where... will send you both a copy of it. How's that? Oh wow, that's thank awesome! Thank you. That would I would love that. Yeah. Where where when it is out, okay. I have links in the podcast, and we'll we'll share them out via email as well. Where where will people be able to find them? It'll be on on Amazon, I assume. It'll be on Amazon, so it'll be in soft cover or in Kindle. Ah, oh, perfect. Big Kindle fan, but I also would love a hard copy if you have a no. <laughs> My girlfriend though, I we do have a hard one in one out wine book policy because I have filled up a full <laughs> bookcase so. <laughs> I will identify okay. them. That sounds it sounds kind of strict to me unless there's a really need for space. Yeah. It, it's it's the latter. Yeah, no, she's she's very flexible. We just live in a one bedroom. So oh, yeah, sure. it's yeah. But awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll look forward to reading the book when it comes out. Well, thanks for having me and uh, cheers and happy holidays to you both. All right. Well, that was our interview with Tim Gazer. Like I said before, we will keep you posted on when the book is coming out. It should be in the next few weeks, hopefully by the end of the year. We'll put a link in the description, but then we'll also send out another link via our email list. So if you're not on the email list, please join. And as Brady referenced in our intro as well, we will be having more collections coming up very soon. There are 17 in the hopper, various different sizes, whiskeys, spirits, different regions. So Get excited. That'll be here for the end of the year into the new year. And we will be back again next week with another episode. Cheers. You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. In 